Good morning, good morning, everybody. Thank you for joining us. We see that there are quite a few people on. Uh, we might give it a few more seconds, but in the meantime, I'd like to welcome you. Good morning, welcome to the Katie Lawyers Forum uh, webinar. Today we have in our company a distinguished guest who will subsequently be introduced. Um, Obviously, discussion for, for today is about being salt and light in the marketplace. And I'd just like to welcome everybody. Thank you for joining. I'll just give it a few more seconds to allow other people to join us. Oh, it's dark. As you join us, I kindly request that you please mute yourselves. So that we can ensure there's no background noise or interference affecting the webinar. Alarms have been raised. Linda, you need to unmute yourself. Oh, sorry. <laughs> good morning. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to the KT Lawyers Forum webinar. I'm just going to give it a few more seconds to allow other participants to join. We are quite, we have quite a packed schedule today and we would like to kick off on time to ensure that we take full advantage of um, the knowledge and wisdom of our speakers. So I'm just going to give you a few more seconds and then formally start proceedings. Okay. So welcome. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for joining us. My name is Belinda Lucas. You have joined, if you didn't already know, you have joined the Katie Lawyers Forum. Today we are talking about a very hot topic, sharing your faith and sharing the gospel in the marketplace, in your workplace, whether that be in your, uh, in your employer's organization or in your uh, personal business. Um, so just a few housekeeping issues. I'd like to please ask everyone to mute their audio to facilitate a smooth uh, session for everybody, both of the speakers and obviously other participants um, on the platform today. Um, the webinar is going to be recorded. So just for your knowledge, it will be recorded and it will be placed on the Kensington Temple website. Um, so for GDPR purposes, we'd just like to draw your attention to that. Um, thank you. And uh, we will have a short prayer session later on, uh, well, shortly, and um, we will have a Q&A session as well. If you do have questions, can I please ask that you post them in the chat, in the chat box, in the, in the text available on Zoom, and we will make a note of those, and those questions will be addressed. 
uh, during the Q&A session subsequently. So I encourage you to please do that. Uh, send your questions during at any point during the webinar, send your questions and we will try to address those uh, during our Q&A session. Uh, as I mentioned before, just in case anyone has joined since I mentioned it, we will be recording this and I uh, will be placed on the KT Kensington Temple website. So without further ado, thank you very much for joining. And I'd just like to hand over to Dr. Solomon Asagi, who's going to talk to us about the KT Giants vision. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Belinda and, and the team. And good morning to you, uh, gentlemen, ladies, and those who are listening to this. Um, a very warm welcome to Sir Jeremy and Mark, who have joined us today. Um, we appreciate taking time to do so. Um, hopefully, uh, most of us will uh, benefit from your very insightful uh, comments and uh, suggestions about uh, how we maneuver our way as Christians through all of this. Um, this, for those who are listening, uh, is Kensington Temple's uh, Giants Forum for Law. Uh, the church is uh, situated in Notting Hill Gate, vibrant, very active um, church. And um, one of the things that we do as a church is uh, the Giants, the Giants Ministry. And um, we describe the Giants Ministry as uh, they're like strongholds that uh, captivate minds, the minds of people, uh, and, and try to impose philosophies, um, we think, but by a lot of bullying really to influence, influence the outcomes of society. And um, our desire is uh, to minister into, this, into these areas of the giants um, so that by being active like, like David, uh, we confront the Goliaths of, uh, of the day um, and we describe these Goliaths as spiritual forces and strongholds of the mind uh, that, that try to work through institutions and structures of society. Um, and and, and they, they really try to influence the way that we do business, the way uh, we exercise government, the way we conduct our lives in different arenas and how we interact with each other generally. And so there, there are a number of giants that we have identified in the church. And uh, we, we have these set up in, in, to, to really to try to work through a lot of these issues. Um, obviously this one law is one of the giants. Uh, the others are business and finance, uh, thought and philosophy, education. Um, there is media and arts, politics and government, law and order is this one. And medicine and health is another one, religion, ecology and the environment, science and technology, sports and leisure, and then marriage and family life is, is the other one. Um, things like the ESG um, agenda is included um, throughout all of the other giants. And we have done a lot of work tackling issues of um, diversity and inclusivity um, in, in society as well as in the church itself. So, so these are the giants that are spread through and we invite our congregation and then people uh, who are outside of the congregation to join and support. We'd like to hear people's thoughts and contributions 
to how we can as Christians seek to influence society and societal outcomes. Um, the running of a business of government is very important to us, specifically because obviously governments will issue um, legislation and, and give general guidance uh, and, and about how we interact. And, and that's why we want to have a voice to be able to shape the outcomes of some of these dialogues and discussions that happen. Uh, so that's what we're going to be doing today. Um, and I hope, um, I, I, I know both speakers, um, very, very respected. Uh, so, so I know it's going to be an insightful uh, couple of hours uh, with us today. So thank you very much for joining us. And, uh, and I hope that you enjoy, enjoy the session. Pastor Colin and Amanda, our senior minister and his wife, send their greetings uh, and have asked me to say a special welcome to all of you. And thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Uh, do I, am I supposed to hand this over to Belinda or this going to Daniel? Thank you, thank you, Solomon. Um, let us pray. Father Lord, we just commit our gathering to your hands today. As we come to hear from our speakers, we pray that our minds will be open, our hearts will be touched, that we'll become salt and light, even in our city. We commit everything we're going to do here today to the glory of your name, and we'll pray that you take control in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Daniel. And now I'm going to introduce our first speaker, Sir Jeremy Cook. Um, Sir Jeremy retired as a judge in March to, um, 2016 after serving for 15 years on the High Court bench to practice as a full-time arbitrator and mediator. His uh, specialism is commercial law, but in his time as a High Court judge, he presided over many high-profile criminal trials, murders, blackmail, fraud, and so on. Um, he was the vice president of the Lawyers Christian Fellowship from 2003 to 2010. Um, he's gonna share with us his experiences of being a Christian in the legal profession and a High Court judge while standing fast to his faith. Welcome, Sir Jeremy Cook. Thank you for your time this morning. Uh, thank you very much. It's uh, very good to be with you. I was with you some four years ago on a lovely sunny day, rather like today. So, as I say, it's a privilege to be with you today. Uh, there's probably no one here who's as old as I am uh, or who remembers a particular satirical television program, which involved uh, a man called Peter Cook, who was no relation at all. But he had a little monologue that he used to give in the days when coal mining used to take place in this country. And he compared the position of a coal miner with that of a judge. Uh, and he had a little spiel that went a little like this. On the whole, I'd rather have been a judge than a coal miner, but I didn't have the Latin. The Latin exams for judges, you see, are very rigorous. And he goes on and on about the differences and he ends up in this way after comparing the two careers. As a coal miner, when you get old and slow and stupid, you have to retire. Of course, it's the exact opposite with judges. Well, there you are, I'm a, a retired judge, so that makes me worse than old and slow and stupid. 
but I currently practice as an international arbitrator, as Lola mentioned, and a mediator. And I sit, in fact, in courts elsewhere in the world, in Singapore and uh, in Dubai, in the international court, obviously not the local Sharia court. Uh, and I guess I'm here today because uh, I'm both a judge and a Christian. And you might like to hear how those two things fit together. Uh, there's an old uh, story about a successful tycoon who was suffering from depression and thought he'd lost his business flair. Uh, he was finding it difficult to make decisions anymore. Uh, and so he went to his GP for a checkup. The GP didn't know what was wrong, so he referred him to a brain specialist. Being a tycoon, he paid for it and went privately and got seen quickly. But when he was seen, he was told he was suffering from burnout. His brain was prematurely old, worn out. But not to worry, with modern brain transplant surgery, he could simply have a new one. He asked about the cost, because as a tycoon, he was obviously concerned about that. And he was told, well, it all depends what type of brain you want. They were a little bit short of supply at the time, but there were some spare legal brains about from overworked lawyers who'd uh, largely died young at their desks from overwork. So he was told you can have a junior barrister's brain for £30,000, you could have a Queen's Counsel's brain for £50,000, or you can have a judge's brain for £200,000. That's absurd, said the tycoon. A judge's brain can't be worth four times as much as that of a Queen's Council? Oh yes it can, came the reply. You see, it's as good as new. It has hardly ever been used. Well, you see, many people think that both judges and Christians need brain transplants, but for entirely opposite reasons. The, the tabloids, the red top newspapers, think that judges need brain transplants because they let offenders off too lightly and they don't do justice so far as the victims or society are concerned. And many people think that Christians need brain transplants because they think that Christians believe in a God who judges and punishes wrongdoing, which they find unacceptable. So there's an oddity there, isn't there? Judges don't punish enough. God shouldn't punish at all. Now, I'm not here to defend God or British judges or sentencing policy. But it's obvious, isn't it, that everybody says that they want justice, except when they might be on the wrong end of it. I often, when speaking, talk about rough justice because human judges, and whether we're talking about professional judges or juries or magistrates, they don't get it right all the time mistakes are made and injustice is done because humans are fallible. Anyway, there are three questions I thought you might be interested in if you got the chance to ask them. Uh, and the three questions I'm going to deal with are, are simply these. What did I do or what do I do as a judge? Why was I and why am I a judge? And what did I or do I actually achieve as a judge? So the first question, what do you do as a judge? Lola's given you some indication already 
But if I tell you that I've been burned in effigy in Karachi and Lewis, you may be surprised. In each case, I was burned in effigy because I had presided over a trial. In one case, three Pakistani cricketers who were convicted of spot fixing, and I sentenced them to prison. And uh, unsurprisingly, that wasn't popular in Pakistan. I was burnt in effigy in a place in Sussex, in Lewis, because I tried two fireworks manufacturers who were convicted of the manslaughter of two firemen. Uh, but they happened to run one of the big bonfire societies there, who celebrate November the 5th in a big way, and all their followers, whilst they were in prison, made an effigy on a float uh, and burnt it in due course. But of course, as you know, it's the jury which convicts in criminal cases. The judge's job is only to ensure that there's a fair trial and to direct the jury on the law, to sum up the evidence for them and give them the questions that they need to answer. He doesn't decide at all. He mustn't influence the jury. The jury must decide for itself independently of him. But he gives them the right questions to ask uh, and answer uh, and then sentences if there's a conviction at the end of the trial. So, so I've done quite a lot of heavy crime murders, as Lola mentioned. Uh, one time I seemed to be referred to as the, the jigsaw judge because I did so many murders which involved uh, the corpses being cut up into small pieces uh, and effectively, of course, having to be put back together. Uh, more of that later in a different context. But the other area of law that I work in uh, operates rather differently, and that's the commercial court and arbitration. Uh, and there I have to decide disputes between international concerns such as banks or insurance companies, oil companies, energy companies, hedge funds, asset managers, large manufacturers, traders of all kinds. Effectively business deals uh, of all varieties. There's no jury there, I have to make the decisions myself. And it's paper heavy, and it's complex factually, and sometimes legally, uh, often involving billions of US dollars, but more commonly millions. Well, why? Why was I? Why am I still a judge? Well, well I was appointed at a time when you didn't apply for the job of High Court judge. You were simply appointed by the Lord Chancellor from usually the ranks of senior barristers. And one morning in 2001, my clerk rang through to me to say that the Lord Chancellor would like to see me that afternoon. Now, when you get a call like that, you realise that uh, you're either in terrible trouble or you're going to be offered a, a job of some kind. Well, you can fool some of the people some of the time, and uh, I was offered the job and given uh, a chance to think about it, pray about it for literally only uh, a couple of hours or so when I was able to talk to my wife and so on. Well, I haven't been found out too often since. Uh, not too many appeals from me that have been successful. But the point I wanted to make really was this, that about two weeks before I got that phone call, I was reading in my daily Bible readings a passage that I was not conscious of having read before, though I guess I, I must have done, because if you do Bible reading plans, then you work through the Bible every so often, don't you? But it came across to me very vividly on this occasion, and I'm going to uh, tell you what it was, uh, because I think you will find it as striking as I did at the time. 
It's a passage in 2 Chronicles chapter 19, where a king called Jehoshaphat uh, sends out judges into the country in order to uh, administer justice. Uh, and the passage reads like this. He appointed judges in the land in each of the fortified cities of Judah. He told them, consider carefully what you do because you're not judging for man, but for the Lord who's with you whenever you give a verdict. Now let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Judge carefully, for with the Lord our God, there is no injustice or partiality or bribery. That's 2 Chronicles 19 verses 5 to 7. Uh, and if you are listening carefully, you'll uh, have gathered that what the judges are being told is this. They must judge with care. They must judge impartially with no element of corruption. They must judge justly. They must do justice. And they must judge in the fear of the Lord. And two reasons are given for that. The first is you are not judging for men, but for the Lord. And the second is this, that he, that is the Lord, is with you when you give a decision. So, so do you see what's being said? He's saying this is a task to be done for God. Which, of course, is true of everything we do for him, isn't it? Ephesians 6, verse 7, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your heart, working for the Lord and not for men. It's the Lord Christ you're serving. When we work, whatever our job is, we work to serve him. And in law, no different, because, of course, God is particularly interested in justice. So, first of all, it's a task to be done for God. But secondly, you actually do it as God's agent. You judge in the fear of the Lord because we are judging for the Lord our God. You're not judging for men, but for the Lord. And then thirdly, he says that the Lord will be with you as you do this judging. And that's both a huge encouragement because I and all judges need all the help they can get. One needs wisdom to try and get things right. We're human and uh, there's room for error. So it's a huge encouragement. Uh, God is with us. Uh, we can ask for wisdom, as James says, uh, and he promises to give it. But it's also a warning, isn't it? Because, because he's with me, he's got his eye on me. He will judge me for my judging. So the passage ends, let the fear of the Lord be on you. Let me just read it to you again so that you've got this. It's, it's so important, isn't it? Consider carefully what you do because you're not judging for man, but for the Lord who's with you whenever you give a verdict. Let the fear of the Lord be on you. Judge carefully, for with the Lord our God there is no injustice or partiality or bribery. I keep a, a copy of this verse in an open box that I take with me into court with my pens and other bits of stationery. It's a reminder that I have a task to do for him. And it's also a reminder that I'm in no separate boat from the criminals in front of me or anybody else in the court in a commercial matter either. Ultimately, it's God who will judge us all. And in the context of appearing in court as judge, I always pray 
for all those who are in court, both the accused, uh, if we're in a criminal trial, for the barristers, for the solicitors, for the witnesses, for the families of the victim, and so on and so forth. God have his hand on God would do justice through what uh, I'm seeking to do. And the essential reason, therefore, that I'm a judge is it's to do justice. Because God is a God of justice who's deeply interested in it. Now, justice is a word that's used in a number of senses. And I guess most people think of it in relation to the punishment of criminals. But it's actually much wider than that, isn't it? In God's perspective, as we can see in the Old Testament, it has a much wider connotation. In biblical thinking, we find the word justice often appearing alongside another word, righteousness. And if you're a Hebrew scholar, you might know that the two words are tzedek and mispat, righteousness and justice. And together, those words have a composite meaning. They go together. They give rise to a bigger meaning than either of them individually. But insofar as they have different meanings, the idea of righteousness connotes getting everything absolutely right, the way it ought to be, ideal, just as one would like the world to be, no evil, nothing wrong at all. If you think about it in terms of a farmer plowing a field, is plowing a farrow that's absolutely straight, a farrow that doesn't deviate at all. That's righteousness, things absolutely right as they should be. And justice is what's needed when the plough goes crooked, when there's a deviation, when things go wrong. It's trying to put things back into the shape that they ought to be in, trying to put it right where there's been a failure. And when you stop to think about it, that is both what God himself is about and what God is looking for his people to do, to get things right and then to put things right when they go wrong. It reflects what God does. Justice is about putting things right so far as it's possible to do so in human terms, in human justice. And when we come to look at God himself, of course, he can do it and do it perfectly. So, so this idea of justice affects all areas of life, not just crime, uh, but all areas of human dealings where it's important that the rule of law should prevail and where the law should be as just as is possible, putting things right where they go wrong. So in business, in families, in all human interaction, where it's practical and efficacious for human justice to do so. I think it's particularly important as it happens in commercial law because that's where money is generated, the money which gives rise to jobs and employment and wages, to taxation, to the money that's spent on welfare, on hospitals, schools, and so on and so forth. The wealth generation of the country must be regulated justly. And the doing of justice inevitably involves judgment, doesn't it? Without judgment, you, there can be no justice. But the world that says that it wants justice, and every individual says he does, largely rejects the idea of a God who will judge. And when people raise this objection, I always say, what would you think of a God who didn't care about good or evil or did nothing about it? 
who did not do justice. And people immediately, of course, uh, bridle at that. But if God is a God of righteousness and justice, he must do something about evil. And when people complain and say, if there's a God, why doesn't he do something about the evil in the world? It's because they have this underlying perception that not only should he, uh, but they want to know why he doesn't. Uh, and what I say is this, isn't, isn't it inevitable that a just God will do justice and like hum human judges, unlike them, he will get it absolutely right. Uh, and so I come to my favorite story that Jesus told that you will all remember. It's a story that Jesus told about a bad judge described as an unjust judge. And this man in the story, as Jesus told it, was self-contained. He neither feared God nor cared about what others thought of him. He was hard bitten. He was cynical about justice. And he was merely seeing out his time on the bench until he could take up his index-linked pension. Now, unfortunately, much reduced as a result of cuts. But there was a widow in the town who'd been cheated. And this widow kept making applications to him to get her case dealt with. Couldn't afford lawyers, so she was doing it herself. But of course, he couldn't be bothered with her. Just uh, an old lady, uh, no lawyers, nothing in it for him, nothing important in that. Uh, and so he did nothing. But she kept on and on at him. And eventually, in the story as Jesus told it, the judge gets so fed up with her continual applications that he says to himself, though I don't care about God, I don't care about justice, I don't care about truth, I don't care what the Lord Chancellor or Minister of Justice thinks about me, but this widow keeps pestering me. People can see it, the press might get hold of it, and I'm embarrassed. I won't get any peace at all until I deal with her case. And so he lists her case and was shamed into dealing with it properly. And what Jesus says is this. He said, if that's what a world weary and corrupt judge does, the one thing you can be absolutely sure of is that God will ultimately bring about justice. So the last question that I want to answer is this. What did I achieve or what do I achieve as a judge? Well, I seek to put things right so far as it's possible to do so in doing justice. And I guess as a judge, I saw some of the worst aspects of life, murder and child abuse, uh, drug wars, blackmail, corruption, and serious commercial disputes where wrongdoing and corruption and bribery and fraud are often to be found. Right in the muck of life, I would seek to do justice in the sense I've described. But there are, of course, two obvious limits to what a judge can do. The first is this, he's bound to apply the law of the land, which approximates less to the standards of Jesus than it once did in this country. But given that, no system of law, even the model law that was given by God in the Old Testament, perfectly enshrines God's ideals. You can see that quite clearly from Jesus' teaching, probably most clearly from his teaching on divorce, which of course the Old Testament allowed. And Jesus said, that's not God's ideal, 
but it's allowed by the law because of the hardness of your hearts, because of the sinfulness of man. And so law makes certain allowances for the way people are. And what it does is essentially practical. It militates against the worst of evils present in the society of the time. And it works within the realms of what is actually possible and regulating that which is most destructive of society and humanity as seen at the time. So it's not perfect. And the second uh, element is this, that it doesn't touch the hearts of men, does it? What, what the law does is to reflect the society it governs, but also to shape the society by what it normalizes and what it outlaws. And it makes people take responsibility for what they do. And it shows them what society considers to be the standards that ought to be observed and what sanctions should be applied when people fall short of them. Whether or not those standards approximate God's standards or not, of course, is another matter. But what it can't do, no law can do, and Paul goes on about this, of course, in Romans, doesn't he? What no law can do is to cause them to do what's right or give them the right motivation. But what the law can't do and what judges can't do, the spirit of God can do. So I could punish and I could sanction people with fines and so on and so forth. I can give sentences. Uh, I can make judgments, but I can't engender remorse, but the Holy Spirit can. Jesus speaks of the Holy Spirit coming and convicting of sin and righteousness and judgment in John 16. And I can't change people, but God can. He, he alone can create a new heart in a, in a person. He can write the law on the heart of individuals as promised in Jeremiah 31 uh, and Ezekiel uh, 36. You remember that passage probably in Ezekiel 36 before we get the picture of the valley of dry bones. But in Ezekiel 36, he, he says this, the Lord says, I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. He changes us so that we would want to follow his ways and live to his standards. I can't do that. I can't change people. Judges can't do that. Laws can't do that. But the Holy Spirit can. So, so here's an encouraging story for you. I tried a murder in St Albans several years ago now, where the victim had been kidnapped on returning to his house near there from East London, where he'd been working in a restaurant. Uh, and he'd been followed home by the estranged husband of his sister. He was obsessively trying to find out where his brutalized wife was in hiding with a view to forcing her to return. And he enlisted the help of two young men, two lads who were on the point of leaving school, 17 year olds or something of that kind. And he got them to grab the victim telling them a story that the victim owed him money. And after the lads helped him bundle the man into the car, the car drove back to London where the two lads were dropped off. And then the victim was tortured by the husband and two others 
in the husband's sister's flat. And there he was killed. I don't know whether it was because he refused to say where his sister was uh, and they killed him as a result or whether they simply overdid the torturing. But either way, he, he was killed. Uh, they cut his body into small pieces and put them into the Thames at dead of night with a view to avoiding discovery. And a few days later, as it happened, a security man at an office block about a mile and a half away saw a seagull drop something in the park in, in the car park. He went to investigate and found that it was the thumb of the victim, whose fingerprints were known to the police, who could then identify him as a man whose absence had been reported. And the police then started to fill all the different bits of the story together with the past history of the husband and wife issues, which they knew about because he'd beaten her up and so on. Uh, some witness evidence of the cars outside the victim's house. Some CTTV evidence of the car's journeys back and forward to London. Uh, evidence of the blood at the flat of the sister of the husband and a lot of mobile phone evidence of texts and calls between all the relevant people. Now, all the participants in those activities told various versions of events to the police, which had very little to do with the truth. Until that is, the trial. Because then one of the lads took the witness box and he said he'd sworn an oath on the New Testament to tell the truth and then proceeded to do so. It emerged that his mother was a Christian and he'd been brought up to go to church and he astonished all his co-defendants by telling of his part in the events that had taken place. And of course, in doing so, uh, he thereby uh, put the other people into terrible trouble. He was convicted of kidnapping uh, and I duly sentenced him being able to be somewhat lenient because he confessed to his part in what had taken place. And I put one of the Christian prison organizations into contact with him. And through those circumstances, he came to faith or perhaps came back to it, the faith that he'd been brought up in. So there's an example, and it's an unusual example, but an encouraging one of even through the processes of human uh, justice being administered, of God working and God's spirit working to change someone, to bring them back to where they should be. God putting things right, God's justice being done in the individual's life, as well as being justice being done more globally in society's terms. And, and the point we need to grasp is this, isn't it? That at the very heart of Christianity lies this idea of justice. The idea that wrong and evil has to be dealt with and things put right. The idea of judgment, yes, but the idea of God putting us right with him by dealing with the issue and changing, with, changing us. Which takes us, of course, to the heart of the Christian faith, doesn't it? The cross. If you stop to think about it, the cross is the ultimate injustice. Here's a man, in fact, God himself, who is punished for crimes that have never been committed. They don't even know what the charge is. It's a fixed charge. The evidence is rigged. The judge three times says he's innocent, but still convicts him. And then he's put to death excruciatingly on a cross. It's the ultimate injustice. It's the epitome of evil. It's everything that's wrong with society, all epitomized and pictured in 
what takes place to Jesus. And yet it's that very action, isn't it, by which mankind actually seeks to do away with God. That's the means that God uses to take on himself responsibility for all the evil in the world. A God who can't stand injustice suffers all the injustice of man by taking human form and dying as if he's the arch criminal, deliberately letting men murder him through corrupt processes of law and unjust punishment. Why? In order that he can take on himself the evil of the world and all its consequences. And we find the God of justice meeting its demands himself. As Peter puts it, he died the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. And in that very same letter, Peter explains why God doesn't do justice now, why he doesn't eliminate all evil here and now. Because by eliminating it, he'd eliminate all those who are guilty of it, including you and me. And the reason Peter gives us this, it's to give people, isn't it, this fresh chance to accept what God has done in Jesus. To put us right and to appropriate that for ourselves, asking him to change us by his spirit, to take over our lives and make something of them. And it's us who has that opportunity to bring this news, this good news, to others in the world around us, and as lawyers, particularly to other lawyers. And my experience is that often criminals or accused who are in prison, people at the low ebb are much more open to receipt of the good news of Jesus than the smart and respectable lawyer or the curmudgeonly judge. All have need of Christ, we're all in the same boat. And those of us who Christ has brought to himself need to take on board our responsibility to bring that good news to them. Humans, human justice is rough and ready, but God's justice is perfect. And his solution to the injustice of the world and our own evil is a perfect solution because he takes all the responsibility on himself. So who is it that needs the brain transplant to go back to where we began? Is it the Christian or is it the person who refuses Jesus, whether he's a criminal, whether he's a lawyer or a judge? And isn't that the message we all need to be getting across? Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Sir Jeremy. Wonderful. Um, as Belinda mentioned at the beginning, if you have any questions, please post them on the chat. We will have a Q&A session um, after Mark Bainbridge speaks. So now we are going to hear from Mark Bainbridge. He's the um, executive director of the Christian Lawyers Fellowship, LCF. He joined the LCF staff team in January of 2019, having been a member since 2006. He practices as a solicitor for over 20 years, specializing in employment and discrimination law, but is no longer practicing. He, Mac is on the leadership team at the uh, Cranley Baptist Church and studied theology at Union School of Theology, Wales. Mark Bainbridge, thank you for joining us this morning. Um, over to you. Thank you, Lola, and thank you for your invitation to speak this morning on the topic of Speak Up. Um, the Lawyers Christian Fellowship began in 1852 as a prayer union, and I'm delighted and thankful that today uh, we continue as a, a vibrant fellowship of Christian law students, uh, legal academics, 
and practicing lawyers. You are concerned about speaking up about the Christian faith, about Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour, about the gospel, um, the whole gospel of Jesus Christ within the legal profession. Um, one of our um, aims and concerns is to resource Christians and the local church in the United Kingdom and further afield. And the Speak Up resource, which I'll talk to um, in a moment, is one of the ways that we have sought to do that in recent years. Um, let me share my screen at this point. I hope that will work nicely. Can you all see my screen? Can I have a thumbs up from someone to make sure that's working? Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Great. So the, the Speak Up resource was um, produced in 2016 in conjunction with the Evangelical um, Alliance. Just move my screen around a bit there. Um, it's a resource that has been very popular. We've um, distributed now over 80,000 copies of the Speak Up resource, and we've done several further print runs um, to meet demand of it. Um, such is its popularity that it has been endorsed in Prime Minister Question Time by the then Prime Minister Theresa May. And we have now um, developed and published a second resource, Christianity in the Workplace, which you should be able to see at the bottom of the sc screen that I'm sharing, um, this time in conjunction with the Evangelical Alliance and with ADF International. Speak Up is primarily about encouraging Christians, individual Christians, to understand their legal freedoms and rights to speak up in the United Kingdom. Christianity in the Workplace, um, that's a guide primarily for employers, but also to help um, Christian workplace groups and Christians in the workplace, again, to understand their freedoms and to use those freedoms to speak up about Jesus Christ and um, to their, their colleagues. And the big question really is, is well, why? Why is this such uh, an important resource and why have we invested with our partners in this? Well, to answer that question, let me go back to a very familiar passage um, from Matthew 28. Um, you recall in Matthew 28 that, Matthew, that Jesus had be, uh, directed his disciples to go to the mountain. Um, the mountain and uh, mountains in scripture, places where the most important um, instructions or revelation is given. And this particular scene is no different. Here, Jesus brought his disciples together for the last time for something truly significant, their great commission. And in these verses, 19 and 20, we read this, go therefore, Jesus tells his disciples, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so, the main verb here is to go and make disciples. It's an imperative. And there's a sense in which all Christians everywhere are under orders, orders of the Lord Jesus Christ, to go and make disciples of other people. And that primary instruction, this great commission, involves going, involves baptizing, and it involves teaching. It's therefore a commission which necessitates speaking up. And therefore, the Speak Up resource um, comes from a, a biblical mandate to go out there and tell other people about the Christian faith. Um, Christians may face or fear hostility or rejection if they do speak up about their faith in Jesus Christ. And so when we do speak up about the gospel, there is a need for wisdom. Um, 
The purpose of the Speak Up resource is to give Christians confidence to speak up by informing them about their legal freedoms and also by um, bringing to bear wisdom, wisdom from a group of lawyers, uh, Christian lawyers, about when and where and how to share the gospel in a winsome way and in a way that is in accordance with the freedoms that we have. The imperative to speak up um, is clear. Um, these verses from Paul to the church in Rome help us get a, a sense of that. Paul wrote, chapter 10, Romans, verse 14, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And so the imperative to speak is of eternal importance and it carries a real sense of urgency. All Christians everywhere have an urgent uh, requirement uh, to speak to um, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Others may hear about him and find life that never ends in him. So, so why, why now? Why this resource at this point in history? Well, Christians are feeling a chill in the atmosphere, especially when it comes to sharing their faith. Um, throughout time, telling others the gospel about Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, and perhaps particularly inviting people to enter the kingdom uh, of God through repentance and for faith has always divided opinion. For those who, has, who are saved, there is nothing more wonderful, more beautiful than the gospel. But for those who aren't saved, the gospel is offensive. We live in an increasingly secularised world, and there are a number of very vocal humanist, atheists and other organisations who are pressing for faith to be kept out of the public square and to be constrained to the private domain. Um, added to this, there are a small number of cases where talking about Jesus has led a Christian into legal difficulty. Uh, the media often sees upon such cases and the media reports have understandably deterred other Christians from speaking about Jesus to avoid uh, incurring a similar outcome. The message of the Speak Up Guide is that we can speak up about the gospel in our workplaces, in our society today. And if you take away nothing else um, from this short talk, it is that our legal freedoms enable us to speak about Christ, to speak about the gospel, and that we can and should therefore be speaking about Christ and the gospel um, in our society today. <clears throat> For a few moments, I'm going to sort of um, switch to looking at the law that underpins our gospel freedoms. I want to sketch out an outline of the legal freedoms we have and explain the the basis follows and then i'll go from that talk about a few cases and then give the 10 top tips that are included in the guide um, for sharing your gospel sharing the gospel uh, in our society in our workplaces let me start by explaining what religion and belief is um, in legal terms and a very helpful case the case of granger plc versus nicholson um, a case that went to the Employment Appeal Tribunal helps us to understand what belief is. In that case, um, the, the claimant, Mr Nicholson, was made redundant from Granger PLC. Granger PLC is a very large, it's a listed, probably the largest specialist landlord in the UK. And Mr Nicholson claimed he had been selected for redundancy because he believed in climate change, a topic which is very popular 
um, and of some concern to our society at the moment. Um, the Employment Appeal Tribunal defined belief um, in that case as something which is genuinely held. It's a belief rather than just an opinion or a viewpoint. It's a belief as to a, a weighty and substantial aspect of human life and behaviour, which has attained a certain level of cogency, seriousness, cohesion and importance that's worthy of respect in a democratic society. Um, belief, protected belief, can't be incompatible with human dignity, nor can it be in conflict with the fundamental rights of others. But on that basis, humanism, atheism, belief in climate change, in the case of Mr. Nicholson, and the Christian faith are protected belief in UK law and, and more widely as well. And so it's just worth underscoring that beyond doubt that Christianity is a belief that receives protection in law. And therefore, to be a Christian is to have a protected characteristic, a characteristic which enables us to speak out about the Christian faith. It's perhaps just worth emphasising at this stage that belief involves not being incompatible with human dignity and not being in conflict with the fundamental rights of others. And I suspect in the years to come, and increasingly at the moment, we're seeing that this is where the battleground really is. Um, does the Christian belief, belief put itself in conflict with the rights of others in our society? For me, and I'll make this point um, as we go on, the gospel is about the restoration, the true restoration of human dignity a restoration which can only be received by new life in Jesus Christ. And for me, Christians need to make and keep making the gospel points um, about human dignity being found in Jesus Christ by speaking up about the gospel. So the next few slides, I want to outline the legal framework for the freedoms which enable us and Christians to speak up about their faith. Now, this stem all the way back to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights um, in 1948. You'll be aware that the Universal Declaration um, is not a treaty in its own right. It's a statement. Um, it's a statement which recognises the inherent dignity and the equal and inalienable rights of all members of the human family. It's about dignity and worth. It's about basic rights and freedom. And following World War II, the Council of Europe... Um, was founded to protect democracy, human rights, and the rule of law. And in the, human, the European Convention of Human Rights, which was then produced by them, um, it, the aim was to secure for everyone um, within the member states universal and effective recognition of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Those convention rights um, were brought home in a particular way in 1998 in the UK through the Human Rights Act. And it's worth mentioning that of the 11 key rights in the European Convention of Human Rights are brought home to the UK in 1998 through the Human Rights Act, only two of those are given special mention, and they are the freedom of expression and the freedom of thought, conscience and religion. Um, I think that's, that's very notable. Um, in relation to freedom of religion, the Human Rights Act states, if a court's determination of any question arising under this act might affect the exercise by a religious organisation 
of the convention right to freedom of thought, conscience and religion, it must have particular regard to the importance of that right. So these rights are important. They're recognised by society, they're recognised by law. Let me turn to Articles 9 and 10, just very briefly capture the essence of these. So Article 9, everyone has a right to freedom of thought, conscience and religion. This right includes freedom to change his religion or belief and freedom either alone or in community with others and in public or private to manifest his religion or belief in teaching, practice, worship and observance. The European Court of Human Rights, in the case of Kokonagis and Greece, um, said that whilst religious freedom is primarily a matter of individual conscience, it also implies freedom to manifest one's religion. And so bearing witness in words and deeds is bound up with the existence of religious belief. And then Article 10 of the European Convention of Human Rights, everyone has a right to freedom of expression. This right should include freedom to hold opinions and to receive and impart information and ideas without interference by public authority and regardless of frontiers. This is a jealously guarded principle in the convention. And notice it's, there's no right not to be offended. And that's because such a right not to be offended would be at odds with the right to freedom of expression. The Equality Act 2010 explains that religion and belief is a protected characteristic. And therefore, there are forms of prohibited conduct in relation to religion and belief, which are proscribed by the Act. They include direct discrimination, that's less favourable treatment because of a protected characteristic. Um, indirect discrimination, that's where there is something neutral, which places those with a particular characteristic, for example, religion and belief, at a particular disadvantage. And victimisation. Um, victimization um, is a legal um, tool which protects the use of rights and freedoms um, under the Equality Act. Another key right under the Equality Act is harassment. Um, harassment is where a person harasses another if they engage in unwanted conduct related to a relevant protected characteristic and the conduct has a purpose or effect of violating the other person's dignity or creating an intimidating, hostile, degrading, humiliating, or offensive environment for the other person. Notice that with harassment, it can have the, the purpose, the intention of, um, of, 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 of causing, uh, of violating the person's dignity and so on, or just the effect. It doesn't need to be intentional. But note again how dignity is a key part of the definition um, here. Let me very quickly now just talk about a few notable cases that have been well publicised. The first is the case of Nadia Iweda and others that made its way up to the European Court of Human Rights. Um, there were four individuals involved in this case. Two um, of the, uh, the cases were Christians who had refused to do something because of their Christian beliefs particularly in relation to same-sex civil partnerships and sexual activity. The other two, including Nadia Oueda, um, were cases about manifesting religion, particularly by wearing a cross. Of the four cases, only Nadia Oueda 
um, succeeded at the European Court of Human Rights. She worked for a, a private employer, British Airways. She had a customer facing role and she was told that the wearing of a cross was in breach of her uh, uniform policy. When she refused to remove or conceal the cross, she was suspended from duty. It's worth noting that Sikh and Muslim employees were not prevented from wearing religious garments. It's also significant in this case that the National Secular Society weighed into the argument and said that it was not only sensible for British Airways to prohibit wearing jewellery over their uniforms, but also that Nadia was seeking to evangelise her workplace by the wearing of a cross. In that case, the European Court of Human Rights accepted that wearing a cross was a manifestation of her religious belief. And essentially, she won the case on that basis. Um, I haven't got time to go into the three cases at the moment, but they may be something which you want to um, explore further in the Q&A session um, at the end of this. Let me talk about two other cases. One, um, Sarah Cuter. Um, she, um, again, was a well-publicised case. Many of the headlines regarding her case talked about her being a nurse who was sacked for offering uh, patients the Bible. The case is worth looking into in more detail than that. Um, Sarah's job was to collect and review assessments, pre-operation questionnaires with patients. And one of the questions that they asked was about the religion of the patient. Um, so Akita was dealing with stressed and vulnerable patients. Um, she accepted that um, on some occasions she had initiated conversations with these patients about her religion, about the religion. And she would take it further, just asking about what their religion was. Um, she might invite them to pray. Um, she might say things to the patient. In one case, she told a patient who was about to undergo bowel surgery uh, for cancer that he'd have a better chance of survival if he prayed. This wasn't simply about offering a Bible to a patient. Um, she assured her employer when her employer raised this with her that she would stop initiating these sort of conversations with patients. She didn't do so. Um, she continued to have these sort of conversations with patients and following a fair procedure, um, she was dismissed for misconduct. It's worth saying she didn't bring a religion and belief case. This was simply a case about unfair dismissal. And it was found that her dismissal was fair because there'd been a fair procedure and the response dismissal in her case fell within the band of reasonable responses open to the employer. The final case um, is of Felix Nagoli. Um, in his case, um, he had made Facebook comments about gay bisexual people, and he was thrown off his university social work course. Um, his case was successful, and that was partly because the university had failed to consider with him lesser penalties for the comments that he'd made on Facebook. Let me turn now to some practical tips, and these are set out in the speaker resource which is available to download for free um, on the LCF website. I'm gonna rattle through these at a fair pace, but please feel free to ask me questions about any of them in the Q and A's at the end of this talk. So here we go, top tip um, number one. Um, remember what you're at work for. Let me read these few verses from Ephesians. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, 
rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this you will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. So the emphasis here is to do your job and to do it really well. And pray for opportunities to share your faith and wait for the opportunities to come. Build gospel bridges by the quality of the work that you do that can bear your witness about your saviour, Jesus Christ. Um, build bridges by Christ-like actions and attitudes. There will be particular times and workplaces where speaking up may not be wise or even possible. But by building bridges, you may create opportunities outside of the workplace for this gospel opportunities to take place. Number two, pray. Pray, as Jeremy encouraged us to, for those that we interact with through our work. Pray for individuals. Pray for wisdom in the conversations that you have. Pray following your conversations for further opportunities and for Christ to give the listener a new heart which is capable of receiving his word by faith. Number three, choose your time and place. As a general tip, the more removed your conversation is from the workplace, the less concern it will be for an employer. Um, there may be forums in the workplace through Christian workplace groups, and that's partly why the Christian Anthem in the Workplace resource has been developed, where you can have these conversations, where you can share your faith, where you can invite speakers in, um, where you can do things like Alpha and Christian and Christianity Explored in a way that isn't threatening and which is in a, in a forum which has been accepted by your employer. Um, if it's difficult in employment, um, you may want to suggest times and places outside of work to continue your conversations. Number four, bring Jesus in. Um, if you're expressing an opinion informed by your beliefs, say so. Um, the emphasis here is about being open about the fact that you are a Christian. And therefore, when you do say something about Jesus Christ, about the gospel, it won't come as a bolt out of the blue to the listener. They'll know you're a Christian. They'll expect you to be saying things that are influenced by your faith. Fifthly, be gentle. Um, Philippians 4, 5, our gentleness should be evident to all. And there's a lesson here that an opinion expressed gently is easier to receive and more difficult to criticise than one that is expressed ardently. Um, remember, the Christian message isn't one of argumentative provocation, but one of loving challenge. And we can do that. We can challenge lovingly, but gently. Sixthly, don't lecture. Um, engage colleagues in conversation and invite questions. Responsive evangelism in the workplace and generally is often more effective. Um, emphasize dialogue over monologue in this regard. Seventh, avoid passing judgments on to others. Um, we should speak the truth um, and we should not be ashamed of our faith but we are to be wise about how we express the Bible's teaching about people's behaviour um, and to be careful that we're not being perceived as judgmental, remembering that we are, as Jeremy said again, in the same boat um, as people. We are sinners speaking to other sinners about the need of a saviour, about the need to put the trust in Christ. Eighth, 
develop good habits. Um, Jesus opens an approach conversation with different people in different ways. Good news includes repentance, but repentance isn't always the opening line in our conversations. And so developing good habits of, about discussing your faith, discussing what you did at the weekend, by going to church, things you learnt, being open about who you are in Jesus Christ is a good habit to develop in the workplace. And so, for example, I know when, I, when I applied for a job um, with one particular employer, I was concerned to share my faith in my interview. So it wouldn't come as a surprise and then it might then lead to further discussions uh, about the Lord in whom I've put my trust. Ninth, respect your colleagues' wishes. Remember, a lack of belief is also a, a protected characteristic. And if a colleague makes it clear that um, faith discussions are unwelcome, you shouldn't press them to pursue that conversation. And this is particularly so in a uh, management position um, in a law firm or other workplace scenario. Um, we need to be careful if we're in a position of authority that there shouldn't be an actual perceived abuse of that position. Um, always check that a person is happy to engage in or continue with a conversation about your faith. And periodically in a conversation, reassures them that it's fine to end the conversation if that's what they want to do. And then finally, respect your colleagues' wishes. Um, ensure that the same respect that you would want to enjoy is afforded to those you're speaking with. And don't necessarily expect an employer to give preferential treatment to the Christian faith um, in, in, in the workplace. These, these guidelines have been given um, based on employment lawyers looking at the law as it stands and reflecting on how we can share our faith in a way that is um, in accordance with our legal freedoms and also which promotes um, good um, relationships in which we can share the gospel. If you share the gospel and then become aware of an issue between yourself and I should say and your employer, not your lawyer, um, a few tips here. One is to keep a good uh, written record. Um, so good advice if you are experiencing um, unfavorable treatment or less favorable treatment at work is to keep a diary. Uh, keep a diary about um, what's happening, about conversations that you're having. Um, keep records of emails sent, letters received, etc. Um, a good diary, a good a contemporaneous record of what you're experiencing becomes invaluable if you then need to take it further by way of a grievance or to an employment tribunal. Um, take a good companion, a reliable companion, um, a good witness to formal meetings that you're involved with. Obtain assistance from unions, ACAS, CAB, um, if that is required, if you get to the point where this is becoming more difficult and you think it may go further. And there is um, on the Lawyers Christian Fellowship website an online find a lawyer scheme. Um, it's a very popular resource, which you may find helpful as a way of contacting a Christian lawyer for further advice about the situation that you're in. Well, finally, thank you um, for listening. I hope that's um, been helpful. Um, the Speak Up resource, as I said, is free to download from our website, along with the Christianity in the Workplace guide. And please do explore. If you're a Christian lawyer, we'd love you to join the Lawyers Christian Fellowship. 
We'd also love you to uh, to look at the, the website and to see the, the vast array of resources, video resources, articles, etc., that are available there to equip and encourage you in your work. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mark. Now, Belinda is going to unmute herself and commence with the Q&A. Thank you very much, Sir Jeremy, uh, for sharing your uh, thought-provoking perspective on righteousness and justice and how that played out in your career. And thank you very much, Mark, for the tips as well. The top, your top 10 tips are very useful. We've had some questions posted to us prior to and during the course of the session. And the first one I'd like to address to either or both of you, please feel free because your both your experiences obviously will be relevant uh, to our audience. And it is this, was there ever a conflict between your faith and your work? And if so, how did you handle that? <clears throat> Do you want to go first, Mark, or shall I? There you go first, Jeremy. <laughs> Um, I think there's a fundamental conflict, isn't there, usually, because um, what are we about when we're working? And the Christian is all about working to serve God. There's, there's an inherent conflict between those who are simply there to do a job to earn money or to make profit, to increase their wealth uh, or whatever, and those who are there as Christians to serve God uh, and to do what he wants. So that's the underlying um, issue in any work situation. Um, in the law, there are, I think, particular pressures because in most law firms now, there are targets for profit, hours to be spent, and a lot of pressure being put on people to spend inordinate times uh, in work uh, and therefore to neglect uh, other parts of life which are important. Uh, there may be pressure, in fact, to work on Sundays when uh, you would wish to be in church and, and that sort of thing. There may be pressure to neglect your family. Uh, and a Christian try and work out responsibly before God by praying and conscientiously making decisions to what the right way uh, is to apportion time. And my experience is that most lawyers' problems uh, tend to be around the question of time and how you allocate your time to one thing or another. Uh, and so you will get conflicts where people want you to work at times that uh, are simply uh, inappropriate because of your Christian commitment. Um, I personally have always taken the view that um, Sunday is uh, a special day. Um, the, the Old Testament principle of one day uh, off in seven, I regard as a God-ordained one. It doesn't have to be Sunday. In fact, if you lived in the Middle East, it would probably have to be Friday. And when I work in the Middle East, that's what I do, uh, take the Friday off. But one day in seven, which is God's day, is the Lord's day, uh, the Sabbath, uh, however you want to look at it, it's, it's an important principle to, to bear in mind. And I don't think actually I would have survived uh, in the law with the commercial pressures that I've lived with unless I had uh, adopted that principle. I would have um, <laughs> suffered from much greater stress and so on and so forth. So, yes, there are conflicts of that kind. There are also conflicts that come from people who are opposed to, to you as well. Uh, but that's no different, I think, from the sort of thing that people face in every job. Do you want to add anything, Mark? Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd echo what you say, Jeremy, on that regard. Um, I think very simply, the, 
the conflict is about lordship. And as a Christian, um, we submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so I think in different workplaces, in different ways, regarding time, perhaps especially, um, there has been a conflict. I mentioned very briefly, actually, just to follow on what Joan was saying, actually, um, the interview where I prayed about um, being able to say that I was a Christian um, was for an employer I'd wanted to work for for some time. And at the interview, the employer said, we'd like you to um, work outside of hours, doing talks, etc., in the evenings and at weekends. And I replied to that question, um, yeah, I'm happy to work in the evenings. I'm happy to work on Saturdays, but Sundays are special to me because I'm a Christian. And that one conversation um, in my interview led to other conversations um, with partners and key clients over time. And so I guess the, the way that I would see uh, the best way of resolving that conflict is to be clear as soon as possible about who is Lord um, in your life. Okay. Thank you very much, both of you, for those questions. Um, we had uh, another question. Alan, are you going to, would you like to take the next question, please? Sure. Thank you very much. And thanks again to uh, Sir Jeremy Cook and Mark for uh, their respective talks today. Really insightful and really helpful. Um, the question that we were presented with was, were you part of a Christian group? Hello, sorry was were you part of a Christian group at work? If so, um, what impact did that witness have or your general witness have on the organization as a whole? And thirdly and lastly, uh, what support, if any, did you get from management? And I think, again, that can be answered by both, uh, maybe starting with Jeremy this time. Thank you. Uh, well, of course, my career divides into several different stages. Um, in fact, I was originally a solicitor, then a barrister, and then uh, a judge, and, and now an arbitrator. But um, let me talk about time as a barrister, because I was in a set of chambers where there were, in fact, two other Christians, not initially, but they came to join subsequently. And we formed a little prayer group and would meet to pray once a week. Uh, and... I mean, it was quite surprising how often we were interrupted by people who knocked on the door and were coming in for advice and so on and so forth. So Chambers became aware of this pretty quickly, that this is what was going on. Uh, uh, because we're all self-employed, one doesn't have any pressure from employers at all. Um, it, it was plain that some other people didn't think much of it, but it was also plain that others were very happy to be prayed for. And when we'd said um, we're praying for Chambers as a whole, we're praying for the... Um, organization and the administration and the staff uh, and other people in chambers, uh, for the most part, people were pretty grateful. Um, I also belong to the Lawyers Christian Fellowship, which of course is global in the sense that um, uh, you're mixing with people from other employers and so on and so forth. And that would organize evangelistic events to which you could invite people. Uh, and when I went on to be a judge, um, we had a little group of Christian judges who would again meet from time to time and organize evangelistic events. Uh, so that I recall having a, a, inviting a number of outside speakers in and getting quite a considerable number of judges to come who were not committed Christians uh, to, to listen to what was going on. And again, because of the um, privileged position one was in, 
it was very hard for anybody to stop me from doing that. Mm. Uh, so that was a great benefit of being in the place that God had put me. Thank you both. Thank you for sharing that insight. Uh, Mark, did you want to, to add anything to that? Yes, it's a, very simply my case. Um, almost all of my employment has been with um, organizations that have been very uh, secular and where there have been very few Christian uh, lawyers. So um, the answer is no. Um, the, the fellowship I got was through the LCF uh, local groups. Okay, thank you. I think it's true to say that in many firms of solicitors, uh, <clears throat> where you wouldn't necessarily be able to advertise openly, Christians have been able to find each other and set up a small prayer group for themselves, which they found enormously helpful. Yeah. Simply to meet with other Christians at a time that's convenient, whether it be lunchtime, after work or whatever. Uh, and uh, that, that's not something that by and large uh, employers will resist as long as it doesn't interfere with what they regard as yeah. the work that matters. But yeah. for Christians, it's a huge help. And I, I, we've always encouraged in the Lawyers Christian Fellowship people to find others in their firm uh, by whatever ever means they can. And of course, if you begin to talk to your colleagues about Christian things, the other Christians soon emerge out of the woodwork. Mm. So you get to know them pretty quickly. Yeah, that's, that's very true. Thank you so much for that. Um, so we have a question that's just come in quite similar to the to uh, the Nadia case where uh, regarding the wearing of a cross. Uh, one of our audience members went into work wearing a t-shirt saying Jesus is Lord. And whilst they had a number of work colleagues, you know, complimenting them about their t-shirts, uh, one particular colleague did report them to the manager and the, the individual was warned not to wear that again because they were preaching Jesus Christ. Uh, what would be your guidance about uh, such a situation, please? To, to either of you, please. I'm going to suggest Mark answers this first. Hmm. So assuming that there wasn't a uniform policy, which meant that you couldn't wear T-shirts with messages on, um, I don't see why wearing a message about the Christian faith ought in itself to lead you into difficulty. Um, if there was a, a uniform policy, um, the question is, well, what is that policy? And is it necessarily appropriate in that workplace? I suppose the other thing as well to emphasize here is what is the best way of communicating the Christian gospel to colleagues? Um, and is the T-shirt the best way of doing that? Absolutely. That's food for thought, definitely. Yes, I think, think I, I would add um, to, to the last point that Mark has made is that it's unlikely that a T-shirt that is as as blatant as that is necessarily going to help. Um, when you first meet someone, you don't say Jesus is Lord, because that's not an engaging way to, to get the message of the gospel across. You know, we're talking about being tactful, about being polite, about uh, uh, respect for other people, and we're very keen to get the gospel message across, but um, you don't start by saying you're a sinner and you need Christ the very first time you meet someone. You need to make contact, make friendships, uh, and earn the right to speak in a sense. Uh, so I would think 
if you were going to wear a T-shirt, you would probably be able to find quite a number that are humorous, which have references to Christianity, which would be much more engaging mm. than what is obviously true uh, to say Jesus is Lord, but, but to put it uh, on your T-shirt, I think is, is probably in the end not going to be the most productive way of getting the message of the gospel across. Uh, what, whatever yeah. um, <laughs> the, yeah. the law may be on the subject. Yeah. Thank you for that insight. I, I often find that humor is a good way to, 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 you know, to address any issue and certainly an, a good icebreaker. Um, thanks for that. Okay. So we have a question that's slightly uh, similar to that, but um, it's one about resistance. So in your career, in your, uh, during the course of your career, have you faced uh, resistance by non-Christian voices or a non-Christian voice? And if so, how did you deal with that? Uh, yes, it's the answer. I think you're inevitably going to, as a Christian, wherever you are. Sooner or later, you'll come across opposition and Jesus tells us to expect it. Um, e even as a judge where um, you're in a very privileged position because you can only be removed from your position as a judge, as a high court judge, by both houses of parliament passing a resolution. So, so that's pretty tricky. But having said that, some of the things that I uh, said attracted huge opposition in newspapers. Mm -hmm. um, there was a case where I was dealing with um, uh, an Islamic ter terrorist. And in my sentencing remarks, I pointed out the difference between uh, what Jesus was saying about approach to others, about loving your enemy, about loving the foreigner who's in your country, uh, about what the biblical principles were, uh, and how therefore um, jihad was simply not on, and comparing in a sense that with the um, the faith that had been adopted by this, this was the woman who stabbed Stephen Timms, the Christian MP, you may recall. Uh, and I got into terrible trouble from uh, newspapers about mentioning that at all. And there was even a complaint, a judicial complaint, uh, which was fortunately dismissed because one was dealing with a hate crime, a religious hate crime, and uh, the powers that be thought it was okay to preach what I think they would have seen was a message of tolerance, so to speak. <laughs> Whereas actually what I was doing was getting across the fundamental difference between what Jesus had to say about these things uh, and what um, at least some branches of Islam appear to say. But you have to put up with it, don't you? I mean, you'll take stick, you'll take opposition. It's, a, it's as simple as that. Okay, thank you for that. Alan, did you have one more question? Alan? Sorry, I believe that was all from me. Okay. okay, I'll take the next question then. Um, and just finally, uh, there's a hot topic at the moment about conversion therapy and the Prime Minister's response to uh, the, the request from the public uh, about banning conversion therapy. And obviously the Prime Minister has responded in saying he, he, he doesn't wish to um, override the rights of Christians as well to obviously practice their religion. What are your thoughts on, on the banning or potential banning of conversion therapy? Do you want to go first, Mark? 
so I, I, my concern here um, would be um, ensuring that that Christians have the freedom to keep on speaking truth to our society, and it's clearly a hot topic at the moment. Um, there are some very strong voices that are seeking to press um, conversion therapy into the the domain of the local church and into the ministry of the local church to to people to society to christians and i think that's where my concern is is how we ensure that our freedoms our present freedoms to be faithful um, and to minister um, are protected yeah I, I i go along with that i think there's something very odd about the idea uh, that someone who uh, wants to change is not entitled to ask other people to help them to do so and particularly to pray for them and so on and so forth and anything that impinged upon the christian freedom to pray for and pastorally assist those who have uh, uh, homosexual leanings or whatever that they are uncomfortable with and want help with. Uh, I mean, that would just, just be fundamentally wrong, it seems to me, in terms of the Human Rights Act, as well as being, from a Christian perspective, um, wholly undesirable. Uh, so I think there's a line to be drawn. Uh, I, I, I guess there are some questions about the forms in which some, quote, conversion therapy takes place, about which I'm not an expert, um, but, but, psychological pressure of one kind or another uh, may, may uh, create difficulties, uh, I don't know. Um, one of the great oddities, it seems to me, is that uh, historically, where people have had um, sexual inclinations which are different from the biblical pattern, um, in the past, people have dealt with this as a question of thinking, attitude, and so on. Now, all of a sudden, the move seems to be to actually change them physically. You know, the whole of this transgender stuff and um, uh, moving from one gender to another by having physical operation seems to me uh, an extraordinary approach to take when it's quite clear what organs you've been born with uh, and you'd have thought the more logical thing was the position of the past to, to try and help people in their thinking as to where they stand on that, uh, as opposed to actually changing their uh, physique, uh, which of course is on the face of it extremely difficult to do. I'm leaving aside the terribly small minority of people for whom uh, the, the gender in a sense is unclear because their genitals are not um, clearly one or the other, but that's a that's a tiny, tiny proportion of people with a medical problem, which really is um, not what we're talking about here at all. Uh, I'm, I've tried to be as delicate as I can about that, and, and I hope as tactful as I can be about that, but um, others will be able to express it better. Oh, thank you very much for addressing what is a very sensitive issue. And I'd like to thank you both for taking the questions and sharing your insights. Um, I'll now hand over to Mamia who's going to lead us in a time of prayer. Thank you.
Thank you. Um, thank you both. Um, honestly, just listening to both of you, the more, you know, I, I, when I think, I just think, Lord, we need wisdom. We need wisdom in this time. And that's what I'm going to lead the prayer on. Um, initially, I was going to kind of talk about being bold and, and I will touch on that but I just feel we need wisdom in this time and 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 it's only from the Lord Jesus Christ that we we, we you know we, we need that wisdom from so father I just want to thank you for this time thank you that um, we can come to you because your word says in James uh, 1 5 if any of you lack wisdom let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach and it will be given to him and father we need it more uh, more now than ever we need your wisdom wisdom in how to um, speak your word to speak your truth and to speak it um, importantly um, in love um, with gentleness um, but with that sense of it is your word that we are standing on father god let us remind us that it is not by power or by might but it's all by your spirit lord um, as we seek to go forward and advance your kingdom for your glory, Father God. And so I just want to thank you for this time. Thank you for um, Mark and, and for Sir Jeremy and you know, being beacons of light. We are all beacons of light um, in this world, but we are your, your beacons of light. So Father, help us to shine for your glory with that wisdom. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. But Father, we just thank you, Lord, even as we um, walk in your wisdom. We thank you, Father, that you've given us the opportunity to be sold and light in our places of work and in the marketplace. And Father, we don't take it for granted. Your man says, your word says a man can receive nothing unless it's been given to him from above. So Father, we thank you, God, that that which you have put on the inside of us, that we will shine. Your word says we are cities set on a hill that cannot be hidden. We are the salt of the earth and we are the light of the world. So Father, we thank you that we will be as bold as lions because your word says that the righteous are as bold as a lion. So Father, we thank you that even as we walk in this boldness that we will shine your light in us that um like the sons of Issachar father God they understood the times and seasons of the Lord and they knew what Israel ought to do so father we declare even as we come to you that we will be like the sons of Issachar we will know when to present things we will know how to present things in a way that is pleasing to you and father most of all I just feel to pray God that our um, relationship with you our intimacy with you will deepen even as we're in the market place that father we will be so conscious of doing what is on your heart your word says that for as many as are led by the spirit of God they are the sons of God so father give us the grace to um, sometimes not even just um, act or do what is um, normal to us do things that are um, conventional but father to be so sensitive to your spirit to be able to wait upon you and to be able to move even as you prompt us knowing that we're not going in our own strength but we're going in the name of the lord so father we thank you that we will not be intimidated but we will be bold as a lion and we will walk in courage we will walk in love knowing that you are be behind us knowing that you are within us help us to carry that consciousness that we are not alone but we are the sons of God and therefore we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. We are cities set on a hill, so we're not called to be hidden. And we know, Lord, that you will continue to guide us in the way that we should go because we come as 
your representatives in the name of Jesus. Father, we thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you um, to our guest speakers, Sarah Jeremy Cook and Mac Bainbridge, and to everyone who has um, joined us today. I'm going to hand over now to Dr. Solomon Sage for a closing remark. And um, so if, I, 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 I'm sorry, we've, we've come to the end of it today. So we're not going to be able to take on any more questions. Someone's asked about the slides. Um, you can go onto our website kt.org in a few days time to watch the recording of this webinar. Um, Dr. Solomon Osage. Thank you very much, uh, Lola. Uh, I think it just remains for me to thank our speakers who have shown uh, very clearly that it is possible to forge a, a successful career and uh, at the same time to maneuver your way through what is an increasingly antagonistic and hostile culture and environment, certainly for Christian believers. Uh, so thank you very much uh, to our panelists. Um, I should thank the facilitators um, on the KTLCC Lawyers Forum. Um, how many of you agree with me that Mamiya has, has got the best hairstyle and <laughs> wins the prize for that? Doesn't beat your cornrows. I, I, was just, I was just going to say an extra, extra communion for you next Sunday. <laughs> um, so thank you all anyway for 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 uh, facilitating all of this and to uh, uh, making us helping us to enjoy uh, this this morning. And and for those of you who have joined uh, to be a part of this, thank you for taking time out of your day to do so. Um, our website, uh, the KT website, has details of how you can get in touch with us. Um, if perhaps you want to advance uh, the discussion and dialogue about some of the things we've talked about uh, today, or even to fellowship and worship with us, uh, you will be very welcome to do so. Um, so I hope you all have a restful weekend and um, all that is left is to wish you a good afternoon and to thank you once again, Sir Jeremy and Mark, for uh, joining us today. Thank you and good afternoon to you all. Thank you all. Thank you very much. Everybody.